Hello everyone, welcome to the NK Active podcast episode five. Really hope you enjoyed the last episode with myself and Caroline French from WJ French and Sons chatting all things footwear. So today we have Charney. Hello. And then we have Natalie. Hi. Everyone should know who these two are by now that they've been on the podcast enough with me already. Um, so let's this month chat about all things related to heel pain because heel pain is as sort of podiatrist myself is one of the most common causes of foot pain that we see in clinic and everything just gets lumped with the term everything's plantar fasciitis but as we'll discuss later on there is so much more to heel pain than there is just plantar fasciitis so i think what we'll do today is we'll have a chat around like different the most common types of heel pain we can see in clinic then we'll then at the end have a discussion about some of the rarer ones songs with some strange names um and then we'll then start giving you guys some tips on what you can do to try and then manage this um yourself so let's get started what should we start with first let's scroll down to my notes and let's start with plant fasciitis so charlie talk us through about what is plantar fasciitis so plantar fasciitis um, is the structure that we call anatomically is the plantar peronis and it's a really fibrous thick tissue and um, that starts at the heel and then um, goes along the arch of the foot and inserts into the toes um, and this is the structure that we use every single time we take a step and it acts as a bit of a spring so it kind of um, holds energy and then releases energy and force to be able to help with movement and so what we're finding with plantar fasciitis is that if we're overloading the structure or there is a pathology so change in that tissue um, then what this can then lead to is, is symptoms of pain and discomfort. Okay and then with regards to that, is the plantar fascia just a continuation of the calf muscle and the Achilles tendon, or is it different in people? I think that's a really good question. So it, I think it's there is a separate structure, so it's its own uh, anatomical structure, but actually it works really closely with the Achilles tendon and calf muscle to help with movement and performance in running and walking. And so it's not just necessarily focusing on the individual structure, but working with the ankle and the um, knee and hip to then get that whole motion together. And I think that's what we miss out in clinic is we concentrate so solely on the foot and ankle that we forget that it's connected to a larger set of joints and bones that move. Yeah, no, but this is why even though me and you are podiatrists, we'll often see foot up to hip issues because that's the old nursery rhyme. Nursery rhyme? Is it a nursery rhyme? I don't know, the funny bones. The MTV show that Natalie's actually too young to remember what funny bones <laughs> was. The word the foot bones connect to the ankle bone. Ankle. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> so then, yeah, because I agree with that because I have seen from some anatomy textbooks of cadavers um so cadavers are people that know they're basically people who have um, kindly donated their body to medical science so we can help actually learn what anatomy is because there's no better way of learning than from a human body um so i've seen in some textbooks where actually you look at the you see this small bit of fibrous tissue that comes from the achilles and it goes round into the plantar fascia however i've then also seen some where that doesn't it isn't there at all and it's just the choice of that atomical variation we're all 
different even yeah. when it comes to anatomy and it makes sense doesn't it like it's a really strong structure that has to hold your body weight and then move it as well at sometimes high speeds and force so yeah. it's going to have to be a, a tough little structure and everything has to work together so yeah I always think of like the lower leg as a bit of a car engine that there's lots of little pieces that come together to form movement and that's the same with the, the foot and ankle. It forms a larger part. So then what do you think it is, again going off script again, are we going to call it fasciitis, osis, opathy or are we just going to call it sort of plantar heel pain? See I quite like the term plantar heel pain I think it allows that encompassment of all the pathologies and all the variations of people that we see um and yeah I think that's a very fitting title I agree that's why because it's not all the time it's not chronically thickened it's something there's not an inflammatory Mm. component there to it so we can't always call it isosis we can't always call it plantar fasciitis because it's it's different so then I think when you then start looking at this plantar hill pain, and then if you look at the subcontext like with regards to sort of the plantar fascia issues, in sort of my opinion, there are sort of three different sort of stages of it, as it were. So we'll chat, we'll get Charlie to make a chat about the imaging side of things. But what you could have is aggravation or thickening of the plantar fascia, and that may be causing your symptoms. Um, But then you can then also then get aggravation of the fat pad, which is this big sensitive tissue that sort of sits um, around that underneath that plantar fascia, um, on top of that plantar fascia area. And then you can then get something called bony edema, so bruising of the heel bone itself. And I've seen cases of sort of this what's being labeled as plantar fasciitis where they've got one two or three of all these things and they will all present in different ways so if we talk about your stereotypical textbook plantar fascia issue you'll have that first step pain in the morning you take a few steps in the morning or after rest and then it eases if you've aggravated your fat pad you'll tend to find long periods of standing around and not moving will just give you that intense sharp pain and then if you're then getting that bony bruising, you'll then find it will start aching and throbbing at night. And you could have one of those elements, you could have all three. And I think depending on how many of those are present could then affect how long it takes to get better. So if we then talk about imaging, Charlie, sort of if someone was to do an image of this, um, what would you expect to see on, say, something like um, ultrasound, for example? Yeah, so ultrasound is commonly used uh, to assess kind of the plantar fascia tissue um, and we tend to take an image from the heel bone and what we're looking for is thickness. So the literature states that if there is an increase between four and six millimetres and it's different from the other side, saying that they've got uh, symptoms on one side and not the other, then it can lead to the idea that there may be pathology. Um, I guess this is where the world of research, we still need to keep adding to this knowledge base because we know that if you're actually doing activities that are going to be strengthening and adapting that structure, then theory would state that you're going to see these natural changes in tissues. So it's actually becoming harder to specifically provide real definitions. And I think that's what we need if we're going to start using imaging is to be able to go, right, what are the definitions for these different populations of people who have plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy or plantar heel pain? Um, and, And what does that look? 
look like. There's been lots of work done in Australia um, looking at MRI imaging and they're looking at different characterizations and characteristics that we're starting to see. Um, and it's looking at what does that add to your treatment plan and treatment diagnosis? Is it used as an educational tool to support patients to understand their condition, buy into why we're doing the certain things that we're asking them to do? Um, does it change what we're going to um, do in terms of a treatment plan? Um, so imaging has its place, but it's being really mindful that we still need to work quite hard to um, work out what it means to that individual person. And I think that's where it's really tricky. Yeah. And so to sum up then really is if you've got this plantar fasciitis, plantar heel pain, you don't, not everyone needs to have an image to actually then get to that diagnosis because a lot of it is in the history. And then sometimes the image that you get will not always then correlate to the problem that someone's got. Yeah, and I guess as just, well. Yeah, and for someone like myself who researches imaging and anatomy, this is, I guess this is the amazing problem to set and solve is why doesn't it, present and look the way that we think it should do yeah so now let's move on to a treatment kind of thing so let's sort of we'll have a chat through all different types of treatment but let's start from an exercise um viewpoint so natalie you've rehabbed a few of these by now mm -hmm. with us in clinic um do you think if you rehab more plantar fascia issues or more plantar plate injuries Oh God, plantar plate. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's still the most common problem I personally see. 100%. Um, so then talking about the exercises around sort of helping someone who may have this plantar heel pain, that's, that we'll just call it plantar fasciitis mm -hmm. for the rest of the podcast. I think that's just going to be just mm -hmm. easier for people. So what sort of exercises would we be looking at, at doing? Um, so one of the main ones would be sort of calf Achilles going into that sort of the foot. So heel raises. Yeah. Um, now the problem with heel raises is sometimes it can put it on stretch. And I, we see a lot of patients who are unable to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we do is we have, um, like a foam dome almost. Um, so we call it the plantar pad. Um, and we just pop this underneath the, the toes, the base of the toes, and we get the patient to do heel raises from there. Um, and it does sort of reduce pain, but it allows us to work and um, work those calf muscles as well. Um, obviously, like any program, starting off double leg and then going to single leg. Um, and then we also focus on that proximal control. So a lot of sort of um, squats, um, lunges, again, going to single leg squats, going to lunges, um, focusing on knee control. So band walks, sort of hip, outside of hip, inside yeah. of hip. Um, and sort of progressing that way and then eventually going to sort of hopping exercises um to making sure that band's really working and it's sort of using that elasticity that charlie was talking about when we're walking and running and stuff so we get people back that way okay so going back to the use of that plantar pad or the um uh, fasciitis fighters is another one that we we can mm -hmm. use um as well um What's different about doing a calf raise with your toes sort of on that with a raised up position compared to just to doing it flat on the floor? Like, like why, why would we want to try and do that with someone with plantar fascia issues compared to just doing a normal heel raise? Yeah, it, sort of, it takes that stress off the load, um, off that band. So it just allows um, more movement to be had um, with less pain. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we also, you know, if people don't have plantar pads, um, we can sort of roll up a towel and use the same same principle as popping it underneath the toes and then using that as a 
Yeah, we started using pads, um, towels. The issue I found with towels, um, A, people, it sounds silly, but people just didn't roll them up. They just got bored of rolling. <laughs> and then after two or three, the um, it just compresses far too much. Um, but luckily, with anyone that goes through our sort of rehab package, they'll get a plantar pad or yeah. fasciitis fighter as, as part of that. And there actually is some research behind um, using the fasciitis fighter. So there was a researcher called Michael Ratliff who looked at the study and basically we know you're doing that. You, in theory, you put, you transfer more of the, you target the fascia slightly better than compared to just doing a hill raise on the own. Now, the research is very much in its infancy, um, but it's something that we use a lot in clinic. And I think it is making sure you get that right sort of type of patient with it. But also we're quite progressive in that we will sort of load people up quite quite heavy mm. um, with it. And then, so we're talking about them working on the gastrocnemius. So there are there any other muscles in the leg that we would tend to try and work on with these plantar fascia? Yeah, so the soleus as well. So the muscle that sits underneath your main calf muscle. Um, and we do this through seated calf raises. Um, yeah. It, you know, we're lucky enough to have a gym here, so I can do it on the Smith machine or on our Slayer's um, calf machine. Um, but again, if people don't have this at home, I get them to sort of sit there, get a washing basket and just fill it with everything. <laughs> Wine bottles, baked bean tins. Children. Anything. Yeah, dogs, anything. <laughs> and they get that same load going through, but with the um, with the seated. Yeah, uh, and I, I completely agree. I think... The soleus is it's most probably in the lower limb, the area that is for, the muscle that's forgotten about the most, I mm. I think, when it comes to rehabbing, particularly these plantar fascia um, issues. So I think you then also hit on the point there nicely of you, you're building up that strength to begin with, but then it's then building up that sort of elasticity and that energy storage back to then moving on to um, the hopping, which I think, again, is is really important because mm -hmm. effectively if someone's a runner or they play any sort of basketball dancing you don't just walk around playing those no. <laughs> those sports do you so you need to get the, the structure ready to go back um so that i completely agree yeah and you know what better way to test it than when we're here and we can see someone doing it and then if it's irritated the day after you know they can give us a call or yeah and we can see how we can progress it that way and testing it so then other treatments that we may use in a clinic could be something along the lines of a shockwave therapy um, as well. So Charlie, sort talk us through about how we've been using shockwave therapy in clinic and some of the results we're starting to see with it. Yeah, so um, shockwave therapy is um, using kind of a, a pressurized force to place it on the area of discomfort um, with the idea being that um, it creates uh, well, encourages an inflammatory response to take hold um, and the idea being that um, once you've done the inflammatory response that it will start the healing process and provides us with a window of opportunity to then start to work on some of the rehabilitative stuff and use kind of things like orthosis and strapping to just kind of help make the patient comfortable but yet work on function and mobility. Yeah. Um, and what our data is showing is with the shockwave is that it does actually, in those patients who are um, 
in quite an acute phase. That means they're they're in uh, quite a bit of pain and discomfort day to day. It is allowing them that window for a few weeks to be able to really hone in on some of the exercises that they're going through um, and to really just start to settle some of those symptoms down. And so what we're noticing is that their pain reduction is happening quicker um, and, and therefore they're able to do a lot more or tolerate a lot more in their kind of working week. Yeah. So it's been a really useful tool for the short term to then help us build long-term goals with our patients. Yeah, I think that's definitely sums up nicely how what we've been seeing in clinic. Though I'm not convinced, I think if you look at a patient 12 months down the line, one had shockwave and one didn't, we, we don't know yet, but my initial thoughts are that that patient will be, the patient had shockwave and the pair that didn't will be in the same position, but I think that journey to that 12 months will happen a lot quicker with the ones that combine the shockwave with the um, rehabilitation exercises as well. So you mentioned again, um, foot orthoses. Um, sort of, do, do you think we need to give everyone who has plantar fasciitis foot orthoses or is it more in a sort of a case by case? Uh, I think it's case by case and it's looking at whether plantar fasciitis or plantar heel pain is with uh, coexisting with other pathology. So sometimes maybe forefoot pathology or foot in the midfoot area can then aggravate the heel. So it's it's looking at what is the patient's kind of clinical history and presenting symptoms. So for those that have um, lots of different things going on, so um, sporadic foot pain in different yeah. areas, um, I find orthosis, again, uh, we don't ever have them for long term. It's more of a short term intervention. Again, provides us with that window of opportunity to then be able to start to work with that patient to resolve some of their symptoms, improve uh, pain, function and mobility. And do you know, I think that will make a another great podcast is actually we could do one on myth busting around foot orthoses and you just raised a valid point there of that not all orthoses have to be there long term. You can remove them and they could just be there to help and aid that rehabilitation yeah. um, process. So then with them, the other things we can look at doing is then also taping. And you can do sort of, I personally, we like here to use the zinc oxide, the rigid stuff. Um, not the um, flexible K taping we just find in our hands. We just don't get good as results. Dangerous. Yes. <laughs> and, but also what we can use the tape for is we use it a lot of the time. Acres, I call it the get out of jail free card. It can really help reduce symptoms there and then. It's not a long-term thing. Taping is just a short-term sort of solution as, as it were. But also sometimes you can use it for, do you think actually, is this person going to benefit from any sort of foot orthosis, the way you tape your foot, you could almost try and mimic the prescription that you then may use in the orthosis. And you can then try and then work out whether which people are going to be suitable to an insult. Because I completely agree, not everyone with plantar fasciitis needs an insult. And actually the majority of them don't need anything long-term either. A lot of it is just about just getting that, getting stronger and building that tissue capacity. But we'll pop a couple of links um, in afterwards because we've got some youtube videos of uh me taping i think natalie's heel it was mm -hmm. um and then me taping my own heel as well so we can show you how you can do it at home and then we can also put in some links to our sort of nk active shop where we sell like the tone loops the tape the fasciitis fighters so trying to then bring sort of plant fasciitis to an end and moving on to the other one one final thing natalie is if you think someone has got this, um, what are sort of 
your most probably three best self-help exercises someone could do um, at home, whether they've got a fasciitis fighter or tape or, or, or not, what would your sort of be most go-to, three most go-to exercises? Um, probably the heel raises with the towel or plantar yeah. pad. I yeah. find that helps a huge amount. Um, next one would probably be more proximal. So I'd go for like a, a band walk to yeah. work the, the glutes. Yeah. Um, and then the final one would probably be, um, depending on where you are, if you're earlier on, probably the seated calf raises for that soleus yeah. um, with heavy weights. And then if you're later on, the sort of box jumps to get that elasticity back. Perfect. And then Charlie, for you, sort of three tips that are non-exercise based for someone. So things that they may, um, they can do to help themselves or when's the point do they then need to sort of go and find someone to get some help? with this yeah so i think taping sometimes in the short term for kind of two to three weeks um it's really great to use i tend to use a lot of the uh, taping when there's always an event just the weekend before is when you always pick up an injury so that can sometimes just allow you to get over the threshold to be able to do the event that you need to do and then go and seek help mm. after that event um the second thing would be looking at footwear so um a shoe that's a little bit more um stiffer in the sole and supportive so it's not easy flexible can just sometimes help support the ankle and the foot in the short term um and then other things you can get kind of off the shelf arch supports that can sometimes help with foot function and mobility but in reality i think it's it's looking at what you want to achieve having a diagnosis having someone assessed and make it targeted to you is is what will get you better quicker and help resolve symptoms perfect so now let's move on to our next one of common causes of heel pain we see in clinic and this one's more around the back of the heel so that plantar fascia is on the bottom of the heel this one's more around the back and we're going to have a chat about sort of two for the price of one really um insertional achilles tendinopathy and then also calcaneal apophysitis um, which is commonly gets the name um severs which you see in children so if we start off with that insertional Achilles um, tendinopathy, if you sort of think of the Achilles having sort of, you've got that the gastrocnemius soleus, then it goes into that Achilles tendon, um, and then you've got sort of three parts. You've got the point where the muscles start and turn into the tendon, the tendomuscular junction. Then you've got the body, the bulk of the tendon, which is called the mid-portion, and then you've then got the bit that then it sort of fixes itself to the heel bone, and that's called the insertional um, part of that tendon. So if we then sort of think about why do we see those coming in clinic, a lot of the time it is sudden changes in activity levels. We've also seen it in our more running triathlon population, people who have changed from a shoe of, say, a 12 mil drop right down to a minimalist type shoe. We tend sometimes to find that they aggravate um, the insertion of Achilles, but a lot of the time it is uh, related to just not having what we call capacity in the tissue. I, you've done too much and then the body can't cope with the load you're trying to put through it. And then also you have to keep in the back of your mind that the more rarer cases, you can then sometimes get insertion of Achilles tendonitis, which is then more related to systemic problems like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, for example, but we're mainly going to focus more on the sort of tendinopathy aspect, the, lo- the overloading issue, as it were. So 
Charlie, what can we do to try and help treat this insertional Achilles tendinopathy? Uh, short-term intervention can sometimes be <coughs> placing what we call uh, a heel raise into the shoe. So this is just, uh, looks like a bit of a wedge that you put in the back of the heel that can take some of the load forces going through the Achilles. And again, this provides a, a window of opportunity to then work on some of the strength if that's an issue or sometimes the flexibility if, depending on what your clinical assessment findings are. Um, we do sometimes look at footwear and look at maybe if you want to go from a, a high grade, a high heel height to a lower heel height, it's that gradual change over yeah. time um, rather than that instantaneous uh, change that occurs. Um, and then it's also looking at your load management throughout the week. So what is it that you're doing in your day um, that's potentially building that capacity and load through that tendon? And is there things that, subtle things that you can do to make things a little bit more different? Are you taking more breaks throughout the day? Um, is it changing from walking to cycling to work? Yeah. Um, so that you are just being mindful of what the tissues are fatiguing throughout that day. Okay. And Natalie, then move over to your exercises for... Um, these insertional Achilles and tendinopathy. What are we mainly? What are we looking at doing? But then there's sort of a couple of things that we don't do because it will make it worse. So if you could just sort of yeah. So um, tendons love to be loaded, so we load it as much as possible. Um, usually we ask the patient their body weight, and we try and match that with weight um, in heel raises, squats. You know, trying to load that tendon into that sort of dorsiflexion position. So that that movement um, and keeping on top of that, that um, the weights, um, found so many people that get to a certain point where they're pain-free and their weight, uh, their um, load is perfect. And then they decide because that pain is reduced, they'll increase their activity level, but forget to increase the yeah. weight side of things. So I think for anything, I would say the loading is so, so important. Um, don't is stretching. So yeah. I see a lot of people coming in like with doing wall stretches saying, you know, I've stretched my kiddies, it's still bad. Um, and this is where I sit on the fence with eccentric heel raises because personally from the people that I've seen, I've never seen any benefit from them whatsoever. So I don't tend to put them in rehab programs. Um, but then I've heard, you know, friends of friends um, saying that they really work. Yeah. Um, but for me personally, I think because it's that stretching motion i just i don't know it's <laughs> so yeah the reason behind that and i think you meant plantar flexion not dorsiflexion yes, flexion, earlier, yeah. um, <laughs> is that you will get that compression again so if you then if your heel drops down you go into that eccentric phase mm -hmm. you get that insertional tendon compressing against the bone and that's what they really don't like so i would argue most probably your friends who have had may have not had insertion or they more had mid portion, which loves doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But insertion or they are insertional towards the end of that rehab program, not at the start, because that's the exact reason why we you just don't incorporate the stretching because it just won't like yeah, definitely. Um, that, that that dropping down into that eccentric phase. Um use it shockwave therapy, what do we think? For... I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I think, um, especially with patients we've seen with reactive tendons, being able to do the shockwave first and then doing the rehab after, they're able to do yeah. so much more and we're actually able to load the tendon without it being painful. Um, so they get much more benefit out of it. That's sort of... Yeah, and I've been... Shockwave for insertional, insertional Achilles tendinopathy it seems to have gone around in a bit of a full circle. So 
to begin with, when I was speaking to the orthopedic surgeons and the sports doctors, they were like, no, we don't do it because it doesn't work. But now we're doing it and everyone else is starting to do it and combining of a rehab program, we're then starting to see uh, it's, it works better. But word of warning though, I think having shockwave on your surgeon is, 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 isn't going to be the most pleasant experience. It's, it may be a little sore, no. maybe a little tender. And I guess that's what we're doing here, isn't it? It's looking at what is the selection of exercises that we are doing in combination with shockwave of the Achilles to then look at what's working. And I think that's the the gift that we can provide back is starting to look at, right, what combinations of exercise and shockwave work well together um, and what maybe less so. And again, that's that selection, isn't it? Right patient, right place, right time um, when it comes to using the modalities that we have. But I think that you touched on, both touched on a nice point there because I think it's then everything that we do is bespoke to the patient in front of us. We're all, we're not just attendant. We, we, we have a mind, a body attached to that tendon. There, there is a human being at the end of mm. this of this ankle with this insertion on Achilles tendon problem. And everything we do is sort of bespoke and tailored to that to that individual. And I think we can't pigeonhole people. We know tendons like to be loaded, but there are so many other factors we need to consider. Diet, sleep pattern, mm -hmm. that all has big impact to smoking, all has big impacts on tendon health and rehab. How much time have you got to do exercises? It's just all these things mm -hmm. need to be taken into um, consideration. So if I was to ask myself three top tips for managing your own insertion of police tendinopathy, one would be, I think, go back and have a look at if there was that training error, go back and did you decide that um, during the lockdown period, you wanted to do the London Marathon because you thought it's the only chance I'm going to get a place doing London Marathon, do a virtual one, and then your running mileage massively increased. Was there a case of your dog walk increased or was there a case of um, you started doing more hill walking or stuff like that? I think go back and, and look at that. I think then also then start doing your calf raises, standing straight to floor, making sure you're not dropping that hill down past that sort of horizontal um level as it were and i think it's then sort of trying to get that mindset that the, these tendons to manage them properly they take time there are no quick fixes when it comes mm. to tendon issues unfortunately we'd love to turn around and say we can do this we can get everything completely better in two weeks but i just I, we'd just be lying to you if we said that and quick fixes just don't exist when it comes to tendon issues you're in for the long haul <laughs> but our data shows that our data shows that if you think in for the long haul and we then look at people once they've left us six months plus down the line everyone's still doing pretty okay people aren't coming back with their flaring off of injuries which is yep. which is absolutely um, we've even seen some fabulous. successes which has been lovely mm. actually having people go and do more than what they could do to begin with so i think that's always a lovely thing yeah we've had some people near enough double their activity levels whether that be their running distance about the amount of times they go out for a walk um yeah it's um been yeah it, it, i think that just then really highlights to us around about the the education as well around and the expectation management around these plantar fascia these achilles tendon yeah. issues that we do just need to make sure that everyone's getting educated along the way so we know what it is and then we can put things in place whether that be exercises mm -hmm. whatever to try and reduce the risk of this happening um, again so let's move on to 
tarsal tunnel syndrome, um, as it were. So, Charlie, what is tarsal tunnel sort of syndrome or let's call it, yes, as it were? Yeah, so within the ankle uh, joint and the way that the ankle moves in relation to the foot, um, there are bones that come and meet together and they create this kind of tunnel effect that sits from um, kind of, it looks like you're going through the foot. Um, and what that can sometimes do is uh, repetition or overuse of, of the joints um, can then create this kind of swelling and fluid buildup in this area. Um, and then that can put pressure on the nervous system and can put pressure around the soft tissues that creates pain and symptoms. Yeah. And then how would that present? So if, someone, if someone's coming to the clinic and we think, oh, this may be tarsal tunnel syndrome, what symptoms would someone expect to be getting? You sometimes get a sharp pain that can last uh, a couple of uh, minutes, tends yeah. to ease when you're um, stopping or not doing the movement pattern anymore. Um, sometimes there can be a kind of a dull ache if it's more towards at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you may notice some heat and swelling um, in and around the ankle area. You may find that you get uh, discomfort on kind of extreme ranges of moving the ankle joint itself. Yeah. And then also you may then also get some numbness around the inside of the ankle uh, as well. Um, I think this answer is going to be quite quick, but Natalie, exercise-wise, tarsal tunnel syndrome, what do we, what do you try and do? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do anything. No, I, I agree. Um, there isn't really a lot. I don't think you can really do rehab-wise for tarsal tunnel. If, if this nerve is compressed, it's compressed. If it's a sort of mechanical overloading and we can try and offload it with foot orthoses and we can have a chat about that in a second Charlie but yeah I think a lot of the time is if you can't offload it with foot orthoses and footwear then it's um, maybe looking at referring on for an injection and then possible um it's quite extreme isn't it <laughs> not, yeah. not any like kind of friendly <laughs> outcomes <laughs> no no it is um they, they speaking to some of the uh surgeons we work they tend to get some good results on with injection but I think it all depends on is the nerve compressed is it trapped in in some way it, it's um why are they getting yeah. um the, the symptoms so what are your experience with using foot orthoses and tarsal tunnel tarsal tunnel tarsal tunnel um uh, i'd say probably 50 50. Yeah. um when they work they work beautifully when they don't <laughs> off to orthopedics is probably the best and kindest thing to offer. And again, I think that's probably where using something like an MRI image is really helpful to really understand what structure is being irritated um, and really targeting your treatment plan to make sure that you're addressing that. Yeah. Um, and within this clinic, um, it, yeah, we know that we're best suited to referring on to our wonderful colleagues who can then take over that management and, and make sure that the person gets the care that they need. Yeah, I completely completely agree now that there is another random one that i think maybe people may find interesting you can obviously because you've got a heel bone you can fracture that heel bone and you um if you jump from a height and land on your heel and you get a fracture the fracture you get is sometimes called lover's fracture and i'll let people try and work out why is it called lover's fracture if you're jumping from a from a height but I'm not joking around. That is the the true name of of that diagnosis um, of that fracture. You can get in get in a heel bone. Um, yeah, maybe we won't chat about stress fractures or anything. That may bring back it's too soon for Natalie to talk about stress fractures. Yeah. Um, we could so, talk about severs. 
Oh yeah. Well, yes. I I'm really sorry. We, we, I just, <laughs> I'm ready for this. I, I, I got a tick like, for me. <laughs> the one she's excited to speak about. She we just massively forgot about it. And I've, I've even got everything planned in front of me, and I still managed to mess it up. Um, so, Charlie, talk to us about Severs. Um, so, um, Severs is uh, is a term used where the growth plates within the calcaneus, that's your heel bone, um, haven't completely gone through their formation into kind of matured bone. So what you tend to find is you get the growth plate is um, slightly um, softer, I guess, and, and more malleable with having its attachment. So the Achilles and the plantar fascia coming and attaching around that area. And so you tend to find it's in um, younger persons. So anywhere between as young as eight to as old as kind of 14, 15 is what the literature indicating. Um, and they often complain of kind of pain. It's worse on activity. Um, it tends to be that it does ease when they're not doing any activity at all. Um, but actually it's the, I guess it's all the emotional bits that go around with it. It tends to stop people doing what they love doing. Yeah. Um, although if you want to get out of PE, great thing to have, <laughs> but it does kind of stop people from living that active lifestyle. In combination with that, you tend to find the Achilles tends to be quite tight um, and it tends to then disrupt kind of normal movement patterns in the lower limb, yeah. which is tends to be when they come to wander into our clinic. Yeah. And the reason why I lumped it together with that insertion of Achilles tendon, it's not an insertion of Achilles tendinopathy. Um, because in my opinion, if you if you see a true tendinopathy in a child, that's almost a, a flag to refer on to rheumatology because you just the beauty of things are kids that their tendons are so flexible and malleable, you can do a lot to them and you won't generally aggravate them too. You may overload them, but they'll settle really quickly. And everyone remembers what the stuff you used to be able to do when you're a child, you used to be able to get away doing whatever sports and activities you want to do. And you get up the next morning and you feel absolutely fine. <laughs> you then hit the magic 4-0 and then you get out of bed and you um, can't, you just find that you, you're just a little more stiff and things take a little more time to get going in the morning. Um, we're not there yet. Yeah, we're, we're not fine. What joys to look forward to. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think it is, the reason why is because it, the management tends to be quite similar, i.e. you tend to look at a hill raise. Um, yeah. A lot of people always try and stretch severs. And a lot of the time, sometimes I have tight calf muscle, but sometimes they won't. And I'm always yeah. of the opinion, if the calf muscles aren't tight, why are you stretching it in the first place? I think it's a lovely condition that we can do lots with and really get symptoms yeah. settled quite easily. So in my head, I'm like, oh, that's one that's really, really great because we can get the person comfortable fairly quickly mm. and then back to activity as soon as possible. And I think the good news is, is that the majority of them, like I would say a high 90% of Severs cases um, or calcaneopophysitis, to give it its proper name, um, will is self-limiting they will resolve on their own yeah. it may take a couple of years but they will tend all tend to get better and the good news is is the majority if you continue to hurt and overload it during football at school the reason i say football the most common type of patient i see personally in clinic are 12 to 14 year old boys playing football in the summer months when the ground gets hard um it's the most common time that i've tend to see it in clinic but the good news is you're not really going to do any damage or issues to it so if it hurts it hurts just offload it but you can go back to doing it and you're not going to cause any yeah. any any lasting issues um and quite often you're just giving them a heel raise in the shoes um how often do you have to then look at intervening with foot orthoses with with this 
Uh, very rarely. So yeah. I tend to give a, a heroes with some um, loading, depending on what their clinical assessment findings are. And then I like to get them back in kind of a month to six weeks time. And if everything's starting to settle and they're off doing what they should be doing, then yeah. they're free to carry on. But I think a lot of the time it's then handing over to Natalie to then start with that rehab because you'll tend to find when you, when we sort of see those those sort of teenagers in, in clinic, how many of them are doing any sort of regular strength stuff in relation to the amount of sport and activity that they're playing? Barely any. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, maybe the odd one do sort of squats. But <laughs> when, when you speak to them, a lot of them, they're like, you'll speak how much activity you're doing. And they want well, RPE twice a week. I'll run around the playground mm. for an hour at lunchtime. Yeah, it's huge. Then I'll load. have after school football. Then I'll have some badminton and athletics. And then I'll have to football match and you look at you thinking they're doing huge amounts yeah. so i think a lot of it's just having a quiet word with them and the parents saying okay let's wind this activity level mm. back get you stronger and then build yeah. that activity yeah. i think as well again. though when you're that age it's more like hobbies isn't it you don't see it as exercise because it is just fun and yeah. you just want to do as much as you can so <laughs> yeah i, I, I was yeah. exactly the same i used to do my paper round and then <laughs> go cycled paper out with my paper bag and my hockey bag then go play indoor hockey before school then have PE at school then have hockey training after school and then do football training after <laughs> that all in one day and I'm thinking no wonder from time to time we sort of um picked up I picked up a few because I was looking back and I think I was just doing far too much <laughs> yeah. was I doing any strength training or any exercises to work? No, I wasn't doing. Um, You're playing on the PlayStation, laid on the sofa. Yeah, it's out Meant and about. to be doing homework. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you sum my childhood up and work. So, <laughs> so, is there anything else? Um, because I clearly miss speaking about seven, even though it's in front of it. Are there anything else that you guys want to mention that I've missed? No, I think it's having the uh, remembering the simple things like you can have um, contusions of the heel, which is bruising. Yeah. Um, you can have the blister formation. So it's all the simple things as well, just to be mindful of. It's not always the most extreme that you'll see out there. Yeah. Yeah. No. So let's sum up with sort of three tips from all of us. So if you're looking at sort of general foot and ankle pain, Natalie, sort of three things from an exercise rehab perspective that people could be start doing to try and reduce the need for people to come to see us yeah so again it's loading starting those heel raises going to single leg heel raises um i can't you know emphasize how important that load is yeah um my second tip would be to look at your load um and it's the hidden load what we've spoken about so just you know writing down what you're doing in a day and actually you know seeing if it is too much um, and then, yeah, using that with the exercises and sort of set yourself a maintenance program, um, more like a rehab if you yeah. don't have any niggles yet. Um, and then just keep to it sort of once or twice a week um, and then really focus on those big muscle groups. Perfect. Good stuff. Charlie? Uh, I think mine would probably be looking at footwear. Is it specific for the activity that you want to do? Um, yeah. And if you're going to change it, make sure that those changes aren't extreme, that they're gradual changes. Um, and then I think it's just that mindfulness that orthosis doesn't cure everything. They have their place within our practice, um, but actually it's making sure that if your knowledge around what is wrong with you is specific so that you get the outcomes you wish to achieve. 
Yeah. See, again, this wasn't in the scripts, and I've sort of asked Charlie and Natalie to give three tips, and I've left myself to last. So <laughs> for me, it would be, remember, we are all different. Um, so if you got an injury, the treatment that Karen on Facebook has had isn't going to be the same that the journey that you may go through because the injury may be different. So yes, groups on that can be helpful, but it's also remembering that this it's, it's your problem, it's your pain. So it's getting the right help when you need it is the second tip. And a lot of the time is, a lot of the time I tend to find if you can get help sooner rather than later, sometimes you can then try and help speed that, that process up back mm -hmm. to activity. And I think finally, it's, I think just be prepared that it's going to be, it's going to take time and things won't always go to plan. So always say to people, when you're going through rehabilitation and treating injuries, they'll have good days, you'll have bad days. But as long as you've got someone in your corner to help keep you pushing you forward and, and motivating you, um, then I think that's always a good thing. And then sort of a bonus tip, as it were, um, that I also think with regards to stuff like this is pain isn't necessarily always a bad thing. So if you're doing some exercises and things feel a little sore and a little tender, that's completely fine. If you wake up the next morning and everything's settled, then that's completely fine. As we say to all our patients, when you're doing your exercises, it may be a little uncomfortable or maybe a bit of discomfort, but as long as everything's settled by the morning after, we're not too bothered about that. So I think that sums up everything nicely. So I just want to thank you, Charlie, for coming. By the way, who's Karen? <laughs> just a random name. Just a random name. Yeah, just a random name. Joe Box. Yeah, <laughs> just sort of, um, yeah, just, just a random name. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, um, and then thank you, Natalie, for coming on. Thank you. Whatever platform you are listening or watching on, don't forget to comment and subscribe and just leave us some comments on what you want the next podcast to be do you want us to have a discussion with someone like amy from so 51 fitness a local gym in romsey and possibly um, a local running coach as well or do you want us to have a chat about calf and achilles problems just comment let us know and we shall see you all next month. Goodbye.